Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome everybody to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and this part two of a great sea fights special on the Battle of Tsushima of May 1905, one of the most decisive naval battles in history. Fought between the Russian and Japanese fleets, this was the first in which wireless telegraphy played a major part. It was the first time a modern battleship was sunk by guns. It was the first and the last decisive steel battleship engagement. And it was the first modern defeat of a great European power by an Asian nation. Part one gave a general background to the battle and to the events which unfolded. Part two, the excellent part two, I have to say, gave the Russian perspective. We heard from the outstandingly entertaining diary of Captain Vladimir Semenov. Today, we hear from Kanika Kakuta, a contemporary historian of the Imperial Japanese Navy. She is talking to us about the Japanese naval context of the war more broadly, as well as the battle itself. Kanika is a final year PhD student in the Department of War Studies at King's College London and she has just submitted her thesis. Her work provides a comparative study of the way that sea power identities form and she does this by looking at the navies and cultures of 5th century BC classical Athens and 19th century imperial Japan. Wow! Kanika teaches BA undergraduate students in the Department of War Studies and Intermediate Officer Development courses at the Joint Services Command and Staff College at the UK Defence Academy in Shrivenham. She is an expert on the relationship between navies, politics and national identity. She is, you must have worked out by now, the perfect person to help us make sense of the extraordinary changes in the Japanese navy which occurred both prior to and then after the Battle of Tsushima. And here she is. Kanika, thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, Sam, it's a pleasure to talk to you about Imperial Japanese Navy. <laughs> um, tell me about the Japanese naval expansion of the late 19th century. So 
Japan started with what I call odds and sods, and in fact, actually, it's been described as odds and sods by various Western scholars about sort of the ship collection because they had just basically random steamships and sail ships that bought by you know from France or Dutch during the Tokugawa shogunate, and then at the end, Tokugawa shogunate's power is weakening, and the Western powers are coming to Japan and say, "Hey, open up your country." By mainly, uh, I think the most significant exp- um, example is Commodore Perry from the US, and yeah. they are already sort of couple of sort of domains like Satsuma and Choshu who's already got their own vessels that they bought so it's a really just odd mix of collections so you can't really call them a navy at that point so first thing they have to do is try to put them under centralized control under the the new mage government after the mage restoration so yeah I would say it's a very odd and sod collection and it's not really a proper navy in a way. So why did they expand? What was the change? I mean, they had to go from um, buying ships from abroad to to building their own, to, to centralising it. What, why did they decide to do that? I mean, it takes a while for them to actually start building their own ships. That only comes in sort of beginning of 1900s rather than uh, late then you know, 1800s. But it's essentially to respond to the Western threat. Significantly, that's the sort of biggest motivation for them to actually start, um, you know, building a navy. And also, I think, sort of realization of rest of the world is having these sort of, you know, ironclad warships or much more centralized, organized navies, and they didn't. So I think it's much more to do with protecting themselves. And there was significant movement to sort of expel the foreigners little bit you know disturbing to think about but it's it's that sort of movement that's what led them towards sort of these military expansions at the beginning that's significant motivation behind it um you work uh, in particular on the link between the navy and politics um which I, I was reading some of your stuff i was absolutely fascinating but just briefly why why do you think that the link between politics and naval expansion is important So what I found it really fascinating when I was doing my thesis, it's sort of these political identities of a sea power and political institutions and how it develops and the role of political elites within the institutions and rivalry and between different groups and states, military and their subjects. And these sort of things you don't really see if you're just focusing on a battle narrative or if you're looking at technology. And it gives you a slightly different understanding of Navy. And I think it's always what I've always found at the beginning of my PhD was that Navy is very much a study of, for most people, just that, oh, it's about this battle, right? It's this about is about this battle, right? I'm like, no, actually, I'm looking at how these politicians try to get funding and how people reacted towards these sort of naval expansions. And it tells you different kind of stories and different, it tells you sort of what identity they're trying to create. So that's why I find politics and Navy uh, relationship absolutely fascinating. I suppose the, the basic point is, is that if you're talking about something like naval expansion is that you need a huge amount of money to... Uh, Builds to maintain the warships, the dockyards, the crews, and that money will only appear if you've got political support. So that the navy itself has to kind of become a political animal. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's another significant sort of battle that navy has to fight in Imperial Japan. We can come back to that um, and I expand on it a little bit further. But absolutely, it's sort of you know you can't just build something so expensive overnight, or you know without convincing other uh, your you know. Uh, population say they're the ones who's often paying the tax which money is going to go towards it so you can't just say i'm doing this by the way and of course so they have to fight that uh battle really carefully and say here's the reason why we're expanding these naval forces and here's a 
yeah. reason why we should be doing this. So yeah, they, I think to say they are political bodies is completely almost really wrong. Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's it's interesting that you if you if you think about it going back to the kind of the the origin of a navy is that they have to convince two people it's a good idea the first people they've got to convince is the politicians yeah. who then have to go and convince the people that it's a good idea so there's a, a fascinating double layer there which do you think was the the harder sell for the for the japanese navy was it more difficult convincing the politicians to support them or then more difficult convincing the people i think that's a good question because initially i think one thing when I did my research, I found that it's very much the there isn't much engagement from the people because there hasn't been a parliamentary democracy fully established. And the Diet only opened in 1889 and, you know, hardly anyone got to vote in a way. So it's not much to do with sort of actual people convincing, but it's much more politician convincing and the sort of uh, parliamentary members that the Navy had to convince. And initially, Japan has this issue with, and I think it continued to do so literally right up to the end of World War Two, really, you know, way of having these sort of certain oligarchic circle of politicians who are very either pro-army or pro-navy and so in a way I think what's more needed convincing was the actual political body rather than the people and people did need convincing later down the line but not immediately at the uh, initial stage of expansion. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the army there as well because obviously you can't see the navy in isolation so I presume there was a rivalry for funds between the army and navy. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. And it's one of my significant focus on my thesis. And what I argue is that um, Japan could never be a sea power or could not form that uh, sort of solid uh, sea power identity because there's always this inter uh, you know, service rivalry and fighting over money and just not just over the funding but also over sort of who's actually going to be the you know principal line of defense it's a it's a constant struggle for the navy and they i think there's a little bit of a issue with na i think also to an extent not anymore with the japanese scholarship but early western scholarship used to sort of see as a army's far more superior than navy and sort of navy got pushed aside and it might be to do with partially how world war ii was uh, has been perceived but yeah yeah well let's focus just briefly on the um russo japanese war absolutely what was, what was the role of the uh of the navy in um the the defense of japan prior to the war so navy is always seen as a secondary or service sort of uh, secondary or sister service to the army so army was the center of the uh, defense strategy so they're the ones who who do all the essentially the legwork and the navy was put aside so it was more of you know navy was used as troop transport or actually just ferrying the troops across the mainland and navy absolutely hated it and said we have these kits for a reason we're not doing this because we want to ferry <laughs> across essentially so it's significant sort of chunks of argument up to 1904 up to actually we'll come back to Tsushima uh, later but um was their sort of you know they're helping the, or they are perceived to be helping the army when they actually weren't. They were they had their own, you know, def, you know, defense strategy and everything else. But it was just the army went now. You're always second. It's it's that <laughs> sort of. It's always as the superiority over navy and uh, navy from the army, and partially it's to do with the sort of political uh, dynamic in the major oligarchs because the 
armies controlled by the Choshu clan and navy Satsuma. And so what happens at the beginning of Meiji Restoration is Choshu is much more significantly politically dominant because they were much more skilled at, you know, getting the money or controlling the politics. So navy had to sort of develop that political identity. So there's part, that's the, where the partially the issue comes from. So is there is there a kind of an underlying clan rivalry then between army and navy as well? I think so. I mean, that, I, th- I think it sort of disappears or it looks like it disappeared over the course of period. But I think fund- fundamental, you know, underlining issue is the clan rivalry between Choshu and Satsuma. And before that, I think Choshu and Satsuma are seen as one block by the rest of the other uh, clans or f- f- former domains by the time major restoration happened that you know it's always it's always Choshu and Satsuma doing everything as they're always the one who's in control they're always the one who lead the polit- national politics and defense and everything else they are the leaders but at the same time within the, those two clans they are absolutely fighting you know they are basically at each other all the time and say who's better than who mm. and that is significant sort of competition between the army and navy and army is referred to as sort of you know citadel of choshu and navy is referred to as satama navy so you see that sort of very uh former domain identity attached to the um armed services and that only disappears on the surface really but it's always there at the baseline uh- how did it originate? How did it come about? How did one clan become associated with the sea more than the other? I think because Satsuma always had a significant number of vessels prior to the Meiji Restoration. They were the one of the few who already were purchasing more ships than anybody else. So there's already sort of initi- at the initial stage, Satsuma had more na- uh, you know, ships to give it to the central government. So you could sort of see why Satsuma ended up being the dominant one because they give, they've given most ships and crew to the central navy or centralised navy. So they had automatically association with navy equals Satsuma. That's the sort of dynamic that they were at. So how did the, um, the kind of the role of the navy then change because of the war so i mean initially you say it was all about ferrying troops and that that has to fundamentally change but in what ways did it change so up so one of the thing i would say is that um i don't know how many people are familiar with the sort of in-depth of mahani and concept of sites of engagement but um the Japanese naval leaders' naval doctrine was very much based on decisive battle, which is, you know, battle should be fought on the surface with the big guns. And this gets confirmed at Battle of Tsushima. And so, you know, I think all of the navies at this point have this concept anyway, but particularly navy gets obsessed about this. And Togo uh, Heihachiro, who is the admiral of the Japanese fleet, did not want to actually engage in battle per se and he also wanted to keep the russians away from the army's logistics so that's what sort of the original navy's role was and essentially what tushima um did was to demonstrate how important this decisive uh engagement is which is actually frankly where all things go wrong in a down you know down later down the line but at that time that's what was most important to them so i think it's sort of idea of you know having a uh uh sort of what do you call it well you should emphasize the importance of quality in warship design and rather than superiority numbers so or this is all at the same time of where the dreadnoughts class is coming so you can see where this is all going japanese naval leaders is much more important 
uh, interested in having a big ships and big guns rather than, you know, focusing on anti-submarine warfare or any sort of convoy system, that any, any source of that. I think that's what um, Navy goes down along. And so I think, yeah, it's absolutely sort of more focusing on we engage with the enemy with the big guns, big ships. Yeah. I mean, what you're, you're, you're kind of hinting at here is the subsequent naval history of Japan and, you know, what happens in the Second World War and, and then the, the, the ultimate defeat of the Japanese Navy. Um, and uh, do you think it's been difficult for Japanese scholars to study the history of the, the Japanese Navy around this sort of time, the early 20th century, um, but knowing what's coming up, <laughs> knowing how it all goes wrong. Do you reckon that they found they found it kind of difficult to isolate? That's an- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Interesting question. So one thing I've noticed, because I'm I'm actually Japanese by birth and I'm I'm fluent in the language, so I've actually worked extensively both with the Japanese and English sources. And when I've started, what I've noticed, English sources have a tendency to focus on the battle. And the Japanese scholars, and I think it's also an unfortunate thing of, you know, language barrier, and a lot of the Japanese sources, although it might not be necessarily naval history, but it's focused on looking at sort of the actual constitution and supreme command, sort of how army and navy fit in and that sort of you know much more sort of political legal side of it and they are a little bit more focused on that but I think the problem with the a lot of scholarship has been I think especially books in sort of 60s 70s 80s um, really focused on sort of battle narrative even from the Japanese side of scholarship because I think there are still people who are right um, who survived the war and who are writing these, you know, in ret- retrospects and saying, this is what went wrong, this is what happened, and, you know, this is what we could have done. So I think they, the shift of sort of scholarship in Japanese scholarship have definitely moved away. And I think I do see the tendency as well in English scholarship as well, but it's just not as many. Yeah, yeah, not as much. So th- there is this this significant change in in the way that the the navy is perceived and the way that the navy perceives itself after the battle of Tsushima. And I was particularly interested in the way that the 
its imagery is changed after the war. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so my one of my absolute favorite thing of the uh, after the war uh, war, fin- uh, war finishes when the navy and army returns. Navy returns en masse and army comes you know bit by bit i mean to be honest the sheer numbers difference so there's partially i'm sure it's partially to do with logistics but it's just imagine sort of you know what it looks like for a, you know a fleet of battleships returning to a port than a you know bit by bit of you know unit by unit of army returning so i think that sort of thing of impact of we we've done this together and we're now coming back together and i i always find that uh, sort of return from the Russo Japanese were absolutely fascinating. Mm. And also because Tsushima had a, such a huge impact and Admiral Togo, when he returned, everyone basically applauded him and and, I, I've, and also get compared to Nelson. So yeah. there's a significant sort of thing of, oh, this actually having this Navy, having a big Navy and having these sort of very strong Navy is a good thing and we could be like Britain and given the fact that Imperial Japanese Navy's training is entirely Royal Navy base it was I think such an easy connection to make and say well do you remember how Battle Trafalgar contributed to the glory of uh, Great Britain we could do the same thing so that I think that's what Tsushima sort of became as no or known as this is the Trafalgar of the East and I think that's the sort of comparison they were going for and it definitely creates more positive um, imagery to them than the army did. So I think it's now become all of a sudden not just a sister service in the shadow of the army but now we are a navy, we are the Imperial Japanese Navy. We also should be absolutely getting all the funding and supports that you know the army has been getting. So I think that's a significant turning point for them. It's almost uh, became so, yeah. yeah, sorry, it became no, like sorry. a you know pageantry exercise in a way. Yeah, and, and they kind of jump on the political bandwagon and get back yes. to the politics. It's yeah, like oh, actually, much. we yeah. we can use this to really advance ourselves. I, I discovered that the British sent the um, the Imperial Japanese Navy a lock of Nelson's hair after the battle. I didn't know that. Which, to be honest, until you told me, uh, yeah, I had to look it up. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Just it's a very odd thing to gift, but I guess. It's still on display in a museum in Japan. I'm going to go. I want to go to Japan. I'm going to go and find this bit of hair. Uh, it makes me wonder how much. Where do they get it from? And if they had like a, a, a sort of a large collection of Nelson's hair sitting around that they were waiting to give to people. <laughs> Just a little. It's a. It's an odd story, isn't it? Here's a lock of hair because you know. <laughs> you sort oh, of. Well, yeah. Hair's, hair's very linked with commemoration and also and, and memory. It's a it's a long mm. long standing British tradition to have locks of hair. Uh, I know there's um, his Nelson's pigtail, like his his queue. It was called. Is at the National Maritime Museum. Oh right. Um, and uh, there, um, was it the Duke of Wellington? After he died, he basically he was scalped more or less by people just taking his hair, and so that when uh, when he was um when he was buried, he didn't have any hair; it all been all been cut <laughs> off, all been pinched. <laughs> um, so know. anyway, well, let's go back to the battle. The battle, um, obviously a, a huge changing point. Um, obviously, it's the first major military victory in the modern era of an Asian power over a European nation. Um, 
everyone must have noticed that as well. It's not just proof of the value of sea power and the sea power strategy. It's kind of proof of, of um, you know, the potential of Asian power as well. But uh, So you've got that. But at the same time, you've got Japan almost crippled with bankruptcy, with mm. the amount of money it's cost. Were, were, was everyone aware that there were two sides to this or were they, were they all just celebrating? I think initially... They are in a massive celebratory mode and Navy takes that as sort of we talked about a few minutes ago, the bandwagon of let's use this to get more funding. And but at the same time, if you look at the politicians, they are clearly aware of how much money we've spent, you know, they've spent on this and they are on a verge of bankrupt without raising taxes. They can't really do any more expansion. And both Army and Navy wants to do expansion based on this. So I think. What follows the Russo-Japanese War is a period of sort of 10, 15 years of even more political battle between the army and navy. And now those two services actively interfere with the cabinet politics because the um, the army minister and the navy minister is an active um, personnel from the services. So if, you know, the... Um, either services said actually we're not appointing a navy minister or the army minister the government could not stand and that's what they kept doing afterwards trying to get money so clearly politicians are aware of and say look we can't actually give you this amount of money you're asking for because we genuinely just don't have it and what navy and army has to now do is compromise and what gets associated with the army imagery for the from 1905 to essentially 1915 is army is you know in with the cabinet politics and they actively you know uh, block the parliamentary politics that's how they got seen as navy has a little bit more um a little bit sort of half well not happy association that's not the right word i'm looking for more positive association because um they are sort of more willing to compromise and say okay well they say we can't do this what can we do and there's a little bit more engagement with the politician sides and i think that's partially because navy struggled so much before to actually have that political support so that's the sort of interesting dynamic there but i don't think population knew to an extent of how much bankrupt sort of uh, status that Japan was in, yeah, or not I mean, to the same extent about, anyway. Yeah, that, that, you know, it cost them so much money to fight this war. Um, mm. Where did the money come from? So significant chunks of it is, I think, I'm borrowing money from, uh, you know, UK and uh, what was it? I think Canada and US, or sort of a lot of Western countries. And I think initially the Western countries definitely were reluctant to lend that amount of money because they thought. Oh, Japan would never win against Russia. Why? Why would they? They are Asian power. If it's relatively new, and then they did, and so that was a big surprise and not expected. But and also, uh, a lot of it comes from taxation of the Japanese population. So it's another significant reason why politics Navy link is really important because Navy had to justify these enormous costs while actually saying, you know asking the government to raise taxes to support it. So I think there is a little bit of tiptoeing around both government and the people and being aware of how expensive these expenditures are by the uh, naval services. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the British, the Canadians, the Americans in particular had loaned a great deal of money to the Japanese and that meant that they they could wield a bit of influence in the peace Absolutely. that happened. I mean, it's a fascinating thing here. So we've got this this hugely dominant naval battle um 
but then it the the piece doesn't quite work out the way that the Japanese want it to. I think the issue with the peace treaty is that they, Japan had all of these, you know, conditions that they were asking at the Treaty of Portsmouth. And the issue was that they very specifically, of, of course, whenever you're going to ask for a treaty, you are going to ask for something that's going to be beneficial to you. But a lot of them uh, were asking sort of, you know, extending leasing in Guangdong Peninsula in China or, you know, access to the Manchurian railways, all of these things, which is going to be a later problem down the line. And at the same time, all of the Western countries are wary of these sort of economical benefits these these sort of treaty outcomes would bring to Japan in the later down the line because I think all of the West Western countries are a little bit on on tiptoeing around Japan going are they going to be actual threat to us down the line and so there's a um move to try to stop the Japan actually achieving all of these at the end in the treaty terms they didn't get any financial sort of indemnity which actually is what they wanted to get because it was so expensive and previously when they went to the Sino-Japanese war they got financial indemnity as well as sort of a couple of sort of territorial benefits so they tried to do the same but even big at bigger scale and when they didn't it angered the people and it's an interesting when the uh, the foreign minister comes back from Portsmouth to Japan actively the crowd tried to attack him and you know say We'd prefer if you actually went to the Russians as a prisoner. That's even that's basically how much mm. anger that they aimed at. And I think what Japan did is that they won the Russo-Japanese War, but they didn't win the peace. And in a way, you can sort of see where all things starts going on in a hindsight again, in a great deal of hindsight from 1905, when when Japan starts going towards the path of, um you know, naval expansions and sort of military expansions. That's you know, you see in what becomes a problematic in 1930s yeah yeah and, and then you know leads up to the second world war so if there's a sense of grievance that they they weren't treated with respect they didn't get what they believed was owed to them from their success in the war is that it i think there's an absolutely element of that too or it's sort of thing of why are we backing down now we've won against this europe you know one of the major powers Imperial Russia is no longer a threat to us. Why are we sort of, you know, being timid here and why are we not asking what we could ask for or what we actually spent should be, you know, paid back? There is definitely um, sort of that attitude happening both in the papers and by also the government as well. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Do you know what? You've inspired me. I want to do a new PhD on, <laughs> on the political clan rivalry of, of the Japanese in the late 19th century. It sounds brilliant. <laughs> Um, listen, thank you so much for your time. It's fascinating. Thank you, um, Sam. And I'm, I'm really glad I got to talk about my thesis a little bit. And thank you again. I do hope you enjoyed listening to this special on the Battle of Tsushima. Uh, listen, please, to parts one and two of the special series on this battle, if you have not already, part one being a general introduction to the events uh, and part two being the Russian perspective. There are also other episodes within this great sea fight series. Previously, we have had multi-part special editions on the Battle of the River Plate of December 1939. That is the first naval battle of the Second World War, and it led to the scuttling of the German pocket battleship, the Admiral Graf Spee. 
And also we have an episode on the Battle of Cape St. Vincent of 1797, in which Horatio Nelson first shot to fame by boarding not one, but two of the largest enemy ships, one from the other, in what he described as his patent bridge for boarding first rates. Now, please do check us out online at snr.org.uk. Please follow us on social media. The Society for North Korea Research has a very active Twitter page and Facebook page. And the Mariner's Mirror podcast itself has a fantastic YouTube channel and Instagram page. And I would encourage you to go and to check that out because there is a wonderful animation of the Battle of Tsushima. Um, which we have recreated from a hand-drawn sketch at the time by Captain William Packenham. Best of all, though, guys, please do join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk and your annual subscription will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past.